This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Joshua Taylor. Thanks for having me. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Quite a week for Great Britain. Last Sunday, it was ruled by Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Queen Elizabeth II. Now it is ruled by Prime Minister Liz Truss and King Charles III, Britain's queen of 70 years, died yesterday. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, it's uh, for a news story that's so obvious, it was very surprising. You know, I think nobody expected, no, every, academically, everyone knows that the, that the queen wouldn't live forever and that she is in her 90s and uh, et cetera, you know, that she would, and that, and that she wasn't well. But I think her death has been a, a massive shock to the nation. Uh, there's been already a, uh, an outpouring of mourning. It's something uh, the the majority of people here in the UK have never experienced the death of a monarch. Uh, yeah, eighty percent, eighty percent of the people in Britain have uh, have. Yeah. She's been the We've only grown up, and she's been there. She's been what? Yeah, you know, she 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 has been greeting prime ministers since Winston Churchill was prime minister. It's it's just an incredible legacy an incredible connection with the past and uh yeah it just seems inc- it seems incredible that that she is gone we've got uh, i think in our village the bells were ringing uh in a kind of mournful tone last night you've got all the flags across the country now uh at half mast i think melanie phillips had a had a good um just quick write up on it and she titled that uh a devastating loss. And uh, she just talked about how for many people, it feels kind of like a personal bereavement. And I've seen lots of other people give similar, similar uh, sentiment. She writes, uh, it's not just because her reign lasted for an astonishing 70 years, the long- longest in the country's history. It's because she was the constant still center of the nation, always reassuring, always a beacon of optimism, always felt to be somehow embracing all of us. She was the symbol of consistency, the link between generations, the rock to whom we were tethered as the storms of the world raged around us. She was always there. Now she isn't, and we feel devastated. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to talk about here, and uh, far more than what we can uh, w- what we really have time for in a week in review. But to just think about what the Queen represented and the fact that she came to power uh, 1952 is that right? Uh, and Britain was a very different uh, country, a very different world power at that time. Um, now she was she was there kind of at the at the ebb, at the at the uh, the waning days of uh, of the British Empire, and she oversaw uh, the dismantlement of a lot of the the empire that had been there in the days before she became queen. Uh, she also uh, was present through these decades, where even the role of the British family within Britain changed substantially. She conducted herself with. Uh, remarkable personal dignity 
Uh, and yet when you, you look at the overall um, legacy that she leaves or, or the Britain that she presided over, uh, there's a, it's a very mixed, uh, mixed legacy in a lot of ways. Yes, but I think it's because she kind of provides that connection to a bygone age right. that is. Uh, I mean, that's part of why there is the reaction that 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 that, that there is that she that things people sense things have gotten a lot worse, uh, and she kind of embodies the values, the decorum, the manners of an age that's largely past. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think. Uh, it's it's kind of an interesting irony that that the legacy of the decline that has happened during her reign makes her missed all the more. Mm-hmm. Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, has been writing a lot about Queen Elizabeth and what she represented and uh, her, her legacy in the last four or five years especially, um, and kind of talking about what will it mean when the queen dies maybe you can just summarize some of of what he's said about this and then he had his trumpet brief uh on last evening as well yes and that trumpet brief the end of an era for britain i think really does uh encapsulate a lot of what we've even been been talking about already just this uh this tie to the past that the queen represented. I mean, in that in that article, and this is something that comes up a lot in what he's written, he goes back to the queen's coronation ceremony. And you can see how much the nation has changed just by looking at that coronation ceremony and what the country was was like back then. You, know, you go back, I don't know, I can't remember whether it was in this article, but, uh, oh, here we go. Yeah, in the early 1960s, as many as a third believed the queen had been chosen by God to rule the country. It's something that you would struggle to find very many people at all with that kind of sentiment today. He talks about how uh, this is a the 1953 ceremony was one that really did point to God and that she was given a Bible, for example, and told, well, this is the most valuable uh, possession, this truth that's in here. And you, you, know, you wonder what this next coronation ceremony will be different. I'm sure there will be some pr- pretty dramatic and stark difference between King Charles's coronation yep. and what we saw in, in, in 1953. But also that 1953 ceremony just shows exactly what Queen Elizabeth was a connection with. It w- yes, a connection to this, ki- but this bygone era. But even more than that, she sits on a throne with a that had a very direct connection with the Bible, that as she was coronated, you had the choir singing Zadok the priest, and she was anointed with oil. And the uh, the coronation ceremony, it, you know, it dates back to King Edgar being crowned in Bath. I think that was in the the ninth century. But the ceremony it goes back even further, and you can you can read about a very similar ceremony by reading First Kings chapter one, by by reading the Bible with the same kind of anointing with oil, the same cries of, of God save the king or God save the queen in this case. And that's for a, a critical reason that this throne connects all the way back to David's throne and to Solomon and to, to that throne, that ancient throne in Jerusalem. And as Mr. Flurry goes through in this article, David was promised in, in several places in the Bible that there would always be a descendant of David sitting on a throne, on a nation and earth. And the Bible gives us so many, enough specifics about that promise that it's not one that we can kind of spiritualize away and say, well, Christ is fulfilling that today. 
uh, it's got to be over a physical, literal country. Mm-hmm. And there aren't many there aren't many monarchs still around ruling over a physical, literal country. And you can then go and you can trace and see how this throne was transferred out of the Middle East over into the British Isles, eventually uh, to the royal family in Britain. And so this is that's she represents that direct connection with God and with the Bible. Now, as Mr. Flurry then goes through, God's made a, a, a critical change in how that throne is run. That uh, that Britain and America are heading into some very tough times. Ultimately, these nations are going into captivity. That throne is going to be snuffed out. In preparation for that, then that throne has been moved, and so that connection with the past. Uh, in a very real sense, has been severed now. We're having a monarch coming, King Charles III, who I think we'll see there'll be a very different character to that throne as God has changed the way that he works with that throne in Britain. So that's some of what Mr. Flurry talked about uh, in his article and just what a critical link to the past, to the Bible and to God uh, that throne used to represent and uh really why we are, as the title says, moving on into a new era. Yeah, one uh, one sentence from his trumpet brief that stands out, he's actually quoting uh, his book, the, the New Throne of David. He says, think about this, if, if Britain no longer has the throne of David, this strongly indicates that Britain is going to go down rapidly. And he said, uh, I believe now the queen has died, Britain's demise will accelerate. We're about to see a very sad ending for that throne. Uh, looking ahead at the uh, the reign now of King Charles III, what sorts of uh, what what can we expect uh, under his reign based on what we know so far? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we've already seen the way he he famously said he wanted to be crowned defender of faiths rather than defender of faith uh, or the defender of the faith. You kind of changing this role from a protector of the established church to the protector of all beliefs that are all kind of equally valid. And I think that sums up quite a lot of his his philosophy, this kind of watering uh, traditions down in the name of inclusivity and diversity. So I think we, ima- I imagine we'll see some of that with the coronation. I think we'll also see you know, a whole lot of the reason that the monarchy and the Commonwealth has been strong and, and held together is because of the personal popularity of the Queen. And I imagine we will see a short-term surge in popularity now for King Charles. I think uh, there will be a surge in support for the monarchy maybe over the next few months. And Mr. Flower even, I think, mentions that in, in, in the trumpet brief. But once that goes away and these other members of the royal family, Prince Charles and, and many others, have already shown that they haven't been they've been unable to have this kind of blameless track record that the queen has had you know it's it's very hard to point to any major gaffes that the queen has had or or anything like that whereas you know it's easy to find them in prince charles and in his brother prince andrew and, and in some many of these other royals so as these come you can certainly see the royal family losing that popularity i saw a, a good article this morning i think it was in the national just talking about how the queen has represented this link between the different parts of the British Isles and the different parts of the British Commonwealth. And a lot of that link has been, in large part, not just because of the institution, but because of who she was uh, and how she did that job. And with her gone and with 
from what we see so far, that job probably being done less well. Well, then you could see that link dissolving, that link fraying, uh, more people leaving the Commonwealth, perhaps a stronger Republican movement, even in the United Kingdom, uh, more of Scotland trying to to split away. So uh, I think you can already just see in the future of the monarchy quite clearly a path to some of those predictions that you just quoted from Mr. Flurry. Well, I do encourage you to read Gerald Flurry's article from this week, The End of an Era for Britain. We'll link to that as well as his book, The New Throne of David, uh, to get a uh, an understanding of what has happened to the British throne. And uh, we will definitely keep our eyes on all that is happening in Britain in the time ahead. A new prime minister, a new monarch. Uh, it will be very interesting to see how how uh, the situation unfolds there. We thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. Ukraine has been at war for over six months, but did you know that Russia is not at war? At least that's what Vladimir Putin says. In fact, in Russia, if you describe the military action in Ukraine as a war, you can be sent to prison for 15 years. But is it possible Putin will actually declare hostilities in Ukraine as a war? For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, back in February, when Russian President Vladimir Putin first sent his forces across the border into Ukraine, he believed that a Russian victory would come within just a few days or maybe weeks in a worst case scenario. But yeah, here we are more than six months on from there and the war is still raging. So there is a lot that can be said for the way Putin overestimated the strength of his military and the way he underestimated the, you know, the strength and the tenacity and the heart of the Ukrainians. And along those lines, there was also a glaring underestimation of just how determined the U.S. and Europe would be in arming the Ukrainians and training them. So all of those were miscalculations on Putin's part, and they add up to a far more difficult, more costly, and more prolonged conflict than he had planned for. So the question now is whether he might soon declare an official war on Ukraine. Uh, up until this point, as you said, he's been very adamant that all he has been conducting in Ukraine is a, quote, special military operation, or sometimes it's called a limited military operation. And he's been so adamant about that, that, as you mentioned there, Russians can actually be imprisoned, and many of them have been for calling it a war. So Putin has really tried to portray this as only a small scale, short term operation. But as the months go by, that's getting harder and harder for him to do especially since Russia has now crossed a grim milestone with 50,000 Russian soldiers having been killed in the war. That's more than were killed in a whole decade of Russia's war against Afghanistan. So major casualties. So you have more and more mothers wondering why their sons died in a special military operation. But even more pressing for Putin are the hawks in Russia. There are plenty of Russian nationalists who think that Putin is too soft and that he needs to be more aggressive in Ukraine than he has been. He needs to put Russia on a war footing, including imposing a large-scale draft and just dispensing with all restraint. So Putin is facing pressure from several sides, and this pressure is increasing right now because uh, Ukraine this week began counteroffensives that are pushing the Russians out of areas that they had previously conquered. And so all of this could prompt Putin to abandon his insistence that this is just a limited military operation and to declare war. And of course, that could mean a far more aggressive Russian military than we've seen over the last six months. 
it, it seems like we've been talking about uh, a similar narrative for some time that Russia encountered more problems than it anticipated. Uh, and and Vladimir Putin has been insistent that uh, everything that they're doing has been very measured and he hasn't begun to fight, basically, that he is um, very willing to use far greater and more barbaric and uh, lethal measures if that's what it takes. Uh, to this point, it's been fairly... Uh, steady. We haven't seen a dramatic escalation in its uh, in its uh, tactics that it's used in Ukraine. But this could this could uh, as this goes on, the danger of exactly that happening increases, doesn't it? You're exactly right. Yes, I think that the fact that Ukraine is pushing back right now, actually pushing the Russians out of those areas that they previously conquered. It's, you know, it's uh, inspiring to see that and it gives you some hope for them. But the truth is that could just prompt Putin to, you know, grow far more aggressive and to actually break out some of those weapons, possibly even including small tactical nuclear weapons. Who knows mm -hmm. if he's desperate and if he feels like he's losing face on the international stage, who knows what sorts of lengths he might go to to try to reclaim what he's lost. You, you mentioned the losses that uh, Russia has suffered. Even that, Vladimir Putin uh, disagrees with. Yes, this was a strange one. But uh, Putin was giving a speech just on Wednesday at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok. And he spoke a little bit about the war. And he said, quote, I'm sure that the Russian Federation has lost nothing since the 24th of February. But the main achievement is strengthening of our sovereignty. So, yeah, we, we know that this man doesn't place any value on the life of his soldiers. That's kind of a time-honored tradition among Russian leaders to be just utterly callous about throwing thousands or even millions of young men into a conflict and not thinking twice about the loss of life. Um, but it does, to me, seem like a particularly heartless strategy to publicly say, we've lost nothing. You know, all those mothers and fathers of the 50,000 slain, all the wounded who probably feel like their missing limbs and shattered minds are indeed losses, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there is also serious economic strain on Russia. Data shows that the average Russian is feeling the, the downturn right now. So it seems like a strange tactic for him to say this. But if he's to be taken at his word, then Putin remains confident about Russia's chances in this war. And he says, you know, Russia's lost nothing and we've actually gained a stronger nation. So talk about uh, Vladimir Putin in the context of, of biblical prophecy and what he's trying to accomplish here and what we might expect based on uh, what we know of prophecy. Sure, yes. Uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury has actually been warning about the danger and the ruthlessness of Vladimir Putin for almost 20 years now, long before Putin was on most people's radar. And that's because Bible prophecy warns about an alliance of some Asian nations that will come together in the modern day. The book of Revelation gives an overview of that. And then Mr. Fleury has pointed to Ezekiel 38.2 to show that this Asian alliance will be steered by one Russian individual. That scripture calls this the Prince of Russia. And Mr. Fleury has uh, identified Vladimir Putin as that individual. He says that he'll lead not just Russia, but a whole group of Asian countries along with it. And in his 2017 booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, 
Mr. Flurry goes through the details of those passages and connects them together and shows just how destructive that force that Putin will lead will be. So I think this just shows how important it is for us to carefully watch Putin just very vigilantly as he continues the war on Ukraine and in other aspects of his despotic leadership. All right. Well, we will link to uh, that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, in the show notes. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. This past week in the Red Sea, Iran seized two drones belonging to the U.S. Navy. To learn about this, we'll turn to Joshua Taylor. Yeah. So the two drones that the, uh, that the Iranians seized, they're called uh, Sail Drone Explorers. They're actually not military tech. They are commercially available drones. Um, so they're unarmed and unmanned as, as these drones are. And according to the Fifth Fleet, these drones were taking unclassified photos of the surrounding environment while loitering in their assigned patrol area, about four nautical miles away from the nearest uh, maritime traffic, which is significant because the Iranians claimed that these drones were, quote, abandoned and were endangering other maritime traffic. So that was kind of their excuse to go ahead and grab these drones. And of course, the U.S. Navy is not going to let these drones just go. They, They are very expensive pieces of equipment. So they sent two U.S.-guided missile destroyers, the USS, uh, the USS Nitsa and the USS Dilbert D. Black, to go and respond to this theft. The Iranians tried to comically hide them under tarps and claimed that they didn't have them. They're pretty big piece of equipment, so they failed to hide them. And uh, as the U.S. Navy ships approached, they cast these drones overboard uh, and fled the area. So, and this is the second incident in the last two weeks of this kind of attempt to steal a drone. Uh, again, almost comically, uh, just a few days before this, another Iranian vessel literally grabbed one and tried to tow it uh, away. And again, the U.S. Navy responded and uh, prevented that that from happening. So, uh, I I can't help but uh, look at this these incidents in the light of everything that's happening with uh, trying to lock down the. Iran nuclear negotiations and uh, Iran, it's, it seems like it's one of several moves that it has made that show that it has no interest in trying to, uh, to, to be uh, a, a cooperative actor with the United States. Uh, but the fact that this happened in the Red Sea, that Iran is, is uh, so uh, concerned in patrolling this very strategic area in in the waters there is uh, significant even prophetically yeah so typically we look at with anything to do with iran we look at daniel 11 verse 40 which talks about how, how iran is going to be very pushy that's going to be its kind of style of foreign policy it's going to push at everyone around it and specifically push at europe so that's what makes this uh incident and its activity in the red sea significant because if you look further down the prophecy it lists some of the uh, other nations that are going to be allied with iran and you'll notice that they're all along the Red Sea and in the, around the Mediterranean Sea as well. So that'll be Libya, Egypt, Ethiopia. These nations are around that area. And then also they're very uh, much in Yemen right now as well with the Houthi, Houthi rebels. So you look at that and you wonder, well, what's Iran doing there? They're not, you know, Iran's in the, their coastline's the Persian Gulf. It's not the Red Sea uh, like these nations are. And the big thing to note is that the Red Sea, and specifically the Suez Canal, is one of the most important trade routes in the entire world, uh, especially in regards for Middle Eastern oil flowing into Europe. So 
again, I, Daniel 11 verse 40, it talks about pushing at the king of the north. And that's as Mr. Flory has uh, talked about before, that's Europe. So if Iran were to threaten that area, uh, just put enough pressure on that area, they wouldn't even necessarily need to blockade it. They couldn't do that. They don't have the naval power for that. But they can make a big enough nuisance of themselves with piracy, underwater mines, which they've used before, you, you know, drone technology, and the missiles that they've stationed all throughout that area. They could pose enough of a risk to that shipping lane that companies and, and shipping companies, they would not want to touch that area. They'd reroute their ships around the southern tip of Africa, which would double or even triple the amount of time it takes for them to reach Europe. So all of that oil that right now Europe is desperately needing, they're in an energy crisis. And especially specifically with Russia threatening them that way as well, they need that oil. They need that energy coming in. So if this were to happen, if they were to threaten uh, that shipping lane, that could just cause uh, energy prices to just absolutely skyrocket. Well, uh, Iran is on the cusp of becoming a nuclear power. It certainly is. Uh, it has resources at its disposal to create uh, some serious disruptions for Europe. And looking at that prophecy, uh, Daniel 11 and verse 40, and expecting that push coming from Iran against the uh, what's described there in that prophecy as the king of the north, it causes us to look twice when we see these types of provocations. Absolutely. And it's and the other thing is that, we, as Mr. Flurry points out, this isn't even a far-fetched uh, kind of conspiracy theory that you could, you could say we're talking about because Iran's supreme leader, in Ayatollah Khomeini, has threatened this area as well. This is quoting him. Today, all the arteries of oil transport from the Bab al-Mandab Strait to the Suez Canal and the Strait of Hormuz are under Iranian control by means of Syria, Yemen, and Bahrain, and are within range of Iranian missiles. So it's, it's again, this is something that they are looking to, and other, other uh, media outlets are seeing this as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. We do have a, a booklet by our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran, that talks about that prophecy in Daniel 11, and it specifically describes this strategy that uh, that Iran has in trying to control the waters around the Red Sea and how Germany is going to respond to that. Go check that booklet out. We'll link to it in our show notes. Uh, and we appreciate that, Mr. Taylor. In a speech last week, U.S. President Joe Biden condemned MAGA Republicans as an extremist threat how serious is it when the holder of the Oval Office makes such a statement? For some answers, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, Joe Biden and those using him are definitely on the attack. Over the Labor Day weekend, Biden gave what was one of the most divisive speeches in uh, American history. Uh, it actually has not even gotten that much media attention. It was uh, the optics of it were were so bad. But if you can if you can see a picture, you've got the the president of the United States with a a pretty angry expression on his face, his fist clenched. He's got a, a Marine Corps guard on both sides of him. Uh, he's got Independence Hall behind him, but it's lit up in this weird <laughs> in this weird red light that looks like a. Oh, some sort of like a theatrical, like high school theatrical presentation you'd see if they wanted to like make it look like you were in Dante's Inferno. And uh, he basically took the gloves off and uh, personally attacked uh, 
President Donald Trump as an extremist threat to the nation three times and the MAGA or Make America Great Again Republicans uh, 13 times. Uh, this is one of his uh, one of his uh, more uh, <laughs> fiery quotes where he said, MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now as I speak in state after state to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence. And so now you have to step back and remember that, I mean, like, According to the official <laughs> to the official government books, there's 74 million right. mega Republicans, uh, and then like said you those <laughs> those who are trying to audit the election figure there's probably about five or six million more than that. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so I mean this is a substantial part of the population. It's not like you're just uh, you're condemning a, a fringe minority. It's uh, you're condemning millions and millions and millions and millions of people as uh, an extremist threat to the, the country in a speech that his press office promised was supposed to bring the nation together. And so it's um, although they both 56 percent of those they poll said that they they feel like the speech was given with the deliberate intent to divide Americans. Right. Uh, well, they they can bring everyone to it seems like they're they're. Their strategy is if you eliminate the half of the Americans that you disagree with, you can bring everybody together. Right, right. It's very similar to like how Mao Zedong solved extreme poverty in China by starving all the poor people. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, but yeah, it's like if you can get rid of these, <laughs> these mega Republicans, uh, then the rest of the country is unified and just a uh, really, um, a really disturbing speech, and there's been some pretty good analysis saying that this is something that Americans should be taking seriously. That's what the, the Wall Street Journal had a, a, an insightful and somewhat funny comment where he said, it's a big advantage for Joe Biden that no one takes him seriously. Uh, it's one of these things where he gave this fiery speech, and then the next day they asked him about it, and he said he doesn't regard MAGA Republicans as a threat to the nation at all. And so it's... <laughs> It's either he's so used to lying that uh, it's just comfortable with that, or he really is senile hmm. and can't remember what he said the day before. But a lot of Americans could um, could take that being like, well, it's like it's, it's a senile old man rambling. He doesn't know what he's talking about, and and part of that may be true. But they, um, the Wall Street Journal article brought out the point like that the uh, back in the Obama days, you'll remember. The, the Lewis Lerner IRS scandal where the IRS was deliberately targeting uh, conservative groups for for unfair audits. Right. Uh, and then much more recently with Merrick Garland where the, the FBI was flagging uh, parents who complained at school board meetings against like woke indoctrination of their children yep. as a threat to the nation. He says a speech like this that just blanket condemns uh, basically, basically does what what Merrick Garland was doing on a small scale with parents at school board meetings and, and does it to 74 million Americans is basically a green light 
to all the Lewis learners and Merrick Garland in the deep state. Yeah. That um, if they want to use the power of the IRS to target conservatives, use the power of the FBI to flag them at extremist threat, that you're in ideological lockstep with uh, the fake president. Yeah, this, this is not just mere political rhetoric when it's coming from the mouth of the the individual holding the highest highest office in the land. He has access to tremendous resources to go after these people that he is labeling as extremist. Right. And even if he is a senile, his boss, Barack Obama, isn't. Uh, and the <laughs> the millions of Lewis learners in the deep state uh, aren't. Uh, and so he, you give a speech like this, you've green light this. I mean, this is uh, really, really a declaration of war. And some people have even phrased it like not just conservatives, because, I mean, you can I'm sure there's liberals too who try to characterize this whole thing as conservative fear mongering. But there was like one of the Washington Post or MSNBC where he uh, he called Biden's speech uh, a declaration of war and not in a negative way in that, like th th this journalist doesn't like mega Republicans either and saying there's like a long overdue declaration of war on the extremist half uh, of America as, as, uh, as the radical left sees it. Yeah. Well, it does really uh, uh, point to this new book from Gerald Flurry, America Under Attack, which uh, goes into quite a lot of detail about how Barack Obama has weaponized these intelligence agencies. You mentioned the IRS, uh, other uh, agents of the government to punish his political adversaries. And you know that uh, he's very involved in the uh, extension of those powers under the Biden administration. When you hear uh, President Biden talking like this, it gives you a sense of just how how intent this administration is to to use those powers uh, to further their own purposes. Right. And that book also brings out the, the prophecy in Second Kings 14, verse 28, specifically uh, some of the earlier chapters focus on verses 26 to 27. But verse 28 talks about uh, a, an end time Jeroboam uh, figure warring to recover political office in America. And the, the book brings out the point that it's like it's going to take uh, – President Trump and the and the mega and the mega Republican movement uh, considerable effort to restore free and fair elections to America. Uh, it's it's not not just going to be something where you can uh, uh, put your name on the ticket in 2024 and win the election and 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 that's that. It's like when you've got like the IRS and the FBI and the CIA and all the other alphabet agencies weaponized uh, against you, you definitely have an uphill fight that's uh, uh, definitely to take a metaphorical war, maybe even a literal war uh, mm. to, uh, to, to defeat what you're up against. Read America Under Attack to learn more about this and uh, the prophecy that uh, Mr. Miller was talking about there. We appreciate you bringing that to us. Uh, you're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up, a major deal between Russia and China that undermines the U.S. dollar, tensions rising between Greece and Turkey, Albania responding to a cyber attack from Iran, and the Biden administration using your tax dollars to fund vending machines for drug supplies. We'll be right back.
are listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Russia and China made a historic deal this week that takes another mighty whack at the supremacy of the dollar as the world's global reserve currency. For this story, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was on Tuesday that Russian state energy giant Gazprom and China's state-run National Petroleum Corporation signed what is being called a historic deal to switch to Russian uh, rubles and Chinese yuan, or renminbi, for sales of Russian gas to China. So Russian gas to China, that's, a, that's an immense market. There are billions of dollars worth of gas that China buys from the Russians every year. But from now on, those sales won't be conducted in dollars or euros anymore, as they mainly have been in the past. Instead, these massive volumes of sales will be settled 50% in rubles and 50% in yuan. And uh, Russia and China are also in the process right now of bringing miles and miles of new pipeline infrastructure online which will significantly increase the volumes of Russian gas that's being pumped into China. And with all of this, they'll be bypassing the dollar and conducting the trade in the Russian and Chinese currencies. So this is, you know, it's another major sign of the deepening alliance between Moscow and Beijing. That's a major development that we're watching. But it also, as you said there, this shows that the days of the United States dollar's global dominance could be numbered. Could you put uh, this deal in the context of all of the other efforts, not just Russia and China, but very notably those two countries, but also other nations as well, to, uh, to try to move international trade in these vital commodities away from the dollar? Sure, yes. Well, even if you even if you just look at Russia, they've made some major efforts this year. Um, we know that earlier this year, the U.S. and its partners froze about $300 billion worth of Russia's central bank reserves. That was to punish Russia, of course, for its illegal war on Ukraine. But after that, Putin started demanding that Gazprom's European customers switch to paying for Russian gas with rubles. There were some countries that refused um, and Russia shut the tap off of their supplies. That was Poland and Bulgaria and Finland. But some European countries have apparently complied with Putin's new terms. These include Germany and Italy and most likely France and the Czech Republic as well. So this has uh, given the embattled Russian currency quite a bit of a lifeline. And then Turkey has also agreed in recent weeks to switch to ruble payments for Russian gas. Then just yesterday, Indonesia entered negotiations with Russia to switch to a mix of rubles and the Indonesian currency. That's not just for Russian gas, but for all trade between Russia and Indonesia. So it's quite a few nations and some large economies. And the list really seems to be growing, especially for countries that are not on board with the American effort to try to punish Russia over this war. So this really could inject some life into the ruble that we've not seen before, and it could end up eroding the U.S. dollar status as the global reserve currency. It's amazing how, how much Russia is thriving uh, since having started the, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, six months ago. Uh, it, it seems like as, as much as Western nations are trying to punish Russia economically, uh, it seems to be just doing... Uh, swimmingly, uh, even conducting energy deals with uh, all kinds of nations. Its economy continues to hum along uh, in spite of those economic sanctions. Uh, this, this prospect of the U.S. dollar losing its 
uh, status as the uh, global reserve currency. Talk about just what the implications of this are prophetically. Sure, yeah. Well, for, for about 50 years now, the Trumpet and our forerunner magazine, The Plain Truth, have said that a financial crisis originating in the United States will end up transforming the world's geopolitical landscape. Back in 1968, Plain Truth editor-in-chief Herbert W. Armstrong wrote, if the dollar is devalued, inflation will almost surely result in eventual economic collapse for the U.S. And uh, Mr. Armstrong's forecast there was founded on Bible passages such as those in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. These passages say that if the people of America refused to turn to God, then he would send curses upon the nation. So Mr. Armstrong wrote, those of you who truly believe the prophecies of your Bible know that such an economic collapse is prophesied to happen. So, you know, the U.S. is already in a period of serious inflation, and if this trend of ditching the dollar advances, especially if more European and more Asian nations join in this Russo-Chinese effort to ditch the dollar, then the outcome for the American economy really could be catastrophic, and it could create the conditions for this uh, prophesied collapse that Mr. Armstrong wrote about and spoke about on so many occasions to happen. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. He has written an article that uh, should be up on thetrumpet.com very soon, Russia and China Inc. Historic Deal to Settle Gas Sales in Rubles and Yuan. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes, as well as the chapter seven of our booklet, He Was Right, about uh, America's financial 9-11 being prophesied. We appreciate that story very much. Tensions have been rising between Greece and Turkey. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, there's been quite the war of words developing between Greece and Turkey. There's been, uh, just in the long run, an uptick in military activity across the borders of the two, with uh, both sides blaming the others, but in general, kind of more Greek viola uh, Turkish violations of Greek airspace, Greece responding by uh, putting more military assets on some of the islands near the Turkish border. Turkish President Rakip Tayyip Erdogan chose to really up the ante uh, much earlier this week, where he, he said, when the time comes, we'll do what's necessary. As we say, we may come down suddenly one night. Uh, a pretty direct threat to attack Greece or to invade some of those islands. He's been a uh, referencing the 1922 war between those powers. Greece has responded by sending a letter to its NATO and European Union allies, basically saying they've got to act now to prevent another Ukraine uh, and asking for help in the face of Turkish military threats. Turkey, uh, Greece and Cyprus, all of these powers that are kind of enmeshed together in, uh, in a hostility have elections coming up in about within the next year or so. So it seems like these kind of tensions are unlikely to dial back. There is quite a lot uh, of uh, things to unpack here. Last time I was on the show, I think we were talking a fair bit about this uh, gas discovery off Cyprus and how this was this was kind of bringing Europe into this area, but then how Turkey was a bit involved in the conflict there. I think the main takeaway really, though, is the rise of Turkey as a regional power. I think Erdogan has been 
very canny at exploiting different conflicts, exploiting divisions. Right now, he's kind of raised in status because he's the only NATO member in speaking terms with Vladimir Putin. He's using that to to raise Turkey's prestige. He sees himself as the potential to be a dominant power in the Middle East. And so because of that confidence, he is pushing against Greece. Now, the Bible does talk about Turkey playing a pretty important role within the Middle East. However, uh, like we've been hearing about on some of the other uh, segments, it really focuses on Iran as being the leader of the Middle East. In the long run, what we'll see is Turkey still wanting to uh, vie with Iran for this top spot. To do that, though, they will need an outside power. They'll have to work with Europe. And the Bible talks about a very significant alliance that is coming between Turkey and Europe. It talks about the role that Turkey will play even in uh, stabbing some of its other NATO allies in the back. Uh, and so I think we can see Turkey rising to play a role in this, a pivotal role in this relationship. And we have more about that in our article, Pivotal Power. All right. Well, thank you for that. We will link to that in the show notes. There's a, a lot to uh, a lot to consider there and understanding that prophecy and how what's happening right here could very well be pointing to that role that uh, uh, that Turkey plays in the future. Uh, it'll take some time. It'll take some study, but uh, definitely worth going and checking out that article. That's from 2017 that uh, Mr. Palmer wrote that article, Pivotal Power, for our October 2017 uh, Trumpet Print Edition. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. An interesting development in Albania this week. It ended diplomatic relations with Iran and ordered Iran's diplomats out of the country immediately. To learn why and what this means, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. So back in July, the Albanian government was hit with a massive cyber attack. It took out their government websites, took down some public sector websites, and actually destroyed a lot of government data. So this wasn't a small attack. It was it was huge. And at the time, they actually blamed Russia for this uh, just because of what's been happening in Ukraine. They were kind of the natural you know demon to go after. But it actually turned out to be Iran. And an investigation was conducted. And the United States, in partnership with some private sector partners, uh, found that the government of Iran uh, conducted this, quote, reckless and irresponsible cyber attack. And the UK's National Cybersecurity Center also determined that this was almost certainly Iran's responsibility. And this isn't the only kind of hacking cyber attack that Iran's been uh, involved in recently. They very actually just this last week, um, Iranian hackers published some personal information of the Mossad chief. David uh, Barnia. And in that case, hackers were able to break into his wife's phone and steal some personal data uh, that was stored there. So what makes this really, really interesting is, again, is Iran's choice of target with this. Because typically, as with Mr. Barnia, uh, Iran focuses on the U.S. and focuses on attacking um, and uh, hacking Israeli targets. But with this massive attack, they actually went after a European country. And as we talked about in the first half with uh, Daniel 11 verse 40, this is right in line with Bible context of them pushing at Europe, pushing them and just provoking this, uh, provoking the attack from from Europe that'll come in retribution. So in the media, they might have been surprised that this was Iran, but here at the trumpet, it's just right in line with what we'd expect. Iranian cyber attacks. Uh, we talked about the uh the, the weapons that Iran has at its disposal in the first half, including uh, this nuclear program that's right on the cusp of full operability. Uh, here's yet another uh, another weapon that Iran has 
uh, has been developing. And uh, cyber attacks can be pretty devastating. There's just a lot of uh, infrastructure that is heavily dependent on uh, the technology that is susceptible to this kind of, of hacking. Uh, it could be that this plays a role in uh, that push that is prophesied there in Daniel 11, verse 40. Uh, we will link to the booklet Gerald Fleury wrote on the role that Iran plays in prophecy. It's called The King of the South. Go check that out. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. Illegal drug use is a huge crisis in the United States. How can you confront such a massive problem? Well, how about the federal government funding vending machines for drug supplies? For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is really a, a shocking story. If you, uh, This is something we've covered many times before. When you look at just the overdose deaths in America, I mean, it is really a crisis. I actually believe the leading cause of death in America for those under 50 is now drug overdose. And so huge problem. Uh, you've got just the state of Texas alone in the past 18 months has... Uh, seized 335 million lethal doses of fentanyl being smuggled into the United States. So enough doses that if everyone in the nation would take one, it would kill the whole country. Uh, and so this is something that you're like, okay, well, how is the Biden administration going to handle this? Now, the Trump administration had been trying to lock down the border uh, and negotiate with China to get them to stop sending the precursor chemicals over. Taking the uh, taking the philosophy of well, if you cut the drug the drug flow off at the source, we can keep it from getting into America. The Biden administration has taken a very different approach. You've actually got the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services spending three point six million dollars to basically put vending machines in rural areas of Kentucky filled with uh, syringes and other uh, injection uh, sites so that people will people will be using a clean syringe when they're injecting themselves with heroin and fentanyl in hopes that if the, the syringe is clean, it won't spread disease and the overdose deaths will go down. And um, this that's not a brand new idea. Other nations have tried it uh, and it, does oftentimes reduce drug overdose deaths uh, by making sure people have the <laughs> making sure people have clean equipment when you're injecting with this, but it's not going to do much to get people off of drugs. Might stop them from killing themselves with them, but it's not going to get them off of them. Uh, especially because um, the reason they're doing these vending machines is they 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 toyed with the idea of actually having like safe injection sites where you meet with a medical professional to inject yourself with heroin. Hmm. Uh, but I guess enough of the people like felt stigmatized uh, going to a medical professional for, for an injection that they, they wanted the anonymity of just being able to go to the vending machine, get the equipment they need for free, uh, and then continue their drug habit. And hmm. so really a shocking state of affairs where it's, it's like waving a white flag uh, and that they figure is like, okay, well, we're not we're not going to get these people off of drugs, so l l let's just try to make sure that they're injecting themselves with it cleanly in order to reduce the overdose deaths, which is, um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone in China's read this story, but they've got to be pretty pleased. I mean, if you if you dig through Chinese military documents at all, uh, it's it's pretty well established that the Chinese are actually sending these fentanyl precursors to Mexico with the deliberate intent of like tearing apart America's social fabric and weakening weakening an enemy. Uh, and so when you're uh, 
when your enemy decides to uh, take the precursor chemicals you're sending to their country uh, and then instead of like confiscating them and getting rid of them uh, start passing around free syringes uh, you know that maybe the overdose deaths will go down a little bit, but the uh, like the family problems and the social problems this are going to cause are going to be getting much worse, mm -hmm. which means that the Biden administration, I mean, this is either like extreme doe-eyed naivety <laughs> or the way things are going, like, uh, like a more sinister ac uh, accomplice to what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do to the United States. Hmm. $3.6 million of our taxpayer money going into uh, funding these kiosks. And and presumably, if they like the results that they get there, then they would uh, expand that program to uh, more parts of the country. Your tax dollars at work. We will link to... Uh, Gerald Flurry's booklet, No Freedom Without Law, that uh, discusses what a, a difference there is between the way that uh, the Biden administration is handling this and the way that God deals with, uh, with problems such as this and how important it is that we obey and enforce the law uh, in order to ensure freedoms for the greatest number of people. We appreciate you bringing that to us very much, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Aristotle, in poverty and other misfortunes of life, true friends are a sure refuge. The young they keep out of mischief, to the old they are a comfort and aid in their weakness, and those in the prime of life they incite to noble deeds. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.